1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety-three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. You know, this program starts every day, just about the same time—about seven minutes after four o'clock. The music starts, and we start the show. And half the time, I'm surprised, and I'm racing in here. I don't know what the uh, what the deal is. Maybe the clock is tilted ever so slightly, and it's not quite what I anticipate, but Pretty much starts the same time every day, five days a week. And I've been doing this for a couple of years. So maybe by the end of the week, I'll have it down. Well, glad to have you with us. Uh, James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. And we are looking forward to a conversation with Steve Bucci. He served America for three decades as an Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official, although we're not going to talk about that. But he is currently a visiting fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center Foreign and national security policy. We're going to talk about the threat of China's uh, 5G technology and the way that they have uh, developed uh, a monopoly for themselves and the security threat that goes along with that. So he'll be joining us uh, in the five o'clock hour. Also, we'll talk with Kathy Branzell. She's on the board of the National Prayer and also serves with the National Day of Prayer. She's written a book. Um, An Invitation to Prayer, Peace, Love, Wisdom, Happiness, Purpose. She'll be joining us to talk about that. And we'll also talk about uh, the first Thursday in May, which is uh, and has been for many years the National Day of Prayer. And then if you'll indulge me just a little bit, I want to share a proud moment with you regarding my nephew, Jordan James Stutzman. I should say Commander Jordan James Stutzman, who was recently given a commission and uh, he appears in some of our local papers um, to This week, so I'm looking, I'm excited about that. Portland Tribune, Beaverton paper, and some of the locals. First, taking a look at some of the national news headlines Ready, Set, Joe. Well, Biden, he did in fact launch his 2020 presidential campaign. It was a bit of a whimper. Um, he launched with a, a video, he attended a fundraiser this evening, and um, there was another event sort of in the middle, but pretty low key. Monday is kind of the bigger day for him. He's having a rally and he's going to lay out his uh, his vision for America. But Biden did launch his 2020 presidential campaign, 20 being significant because he makes number 20 on the Democrat side. After months of speculation, the former vice president officially announced, and we'll talk more about that later, uh, later, he's joining a crowded field of Democrats running for president in 2020. He's Uh, released a video with his announcement and and actually went right to Trump. He didn't bother mentioning his um, rivals for the Democratic nomination. He went right to Trump and the jugular. And despite the recent Me Too controversy, where several women accused him of inappropriately uh, touching them, Biden, who's 76 now, has remained at the top of most public opinion polls. Senator Bernie Sanders, who is 77, he stirred uh, controversy this week for his support of allowing prisoners to vote. We'll see how long that lasts this many months out of uh, of an election. But nonetheless, he's uh, Joe Biden's main rival at this point. And Russian President Vladimir Putin and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said today that they had good talks about their joint efforts to resolve a standoff over Pyongyang's nuclear program with stalled negotiations with the United States. Speaking at the start of the talks at the University of Ruski Island across the uh, bridge from Vladivostok, President Putin voiced confidence that Kim's visit will help better understand what should be done to settle the situation on the Korean Peninsula. What we can do together, what Russia can do to support the positive process going on now. Well, Kim's trip to Russia, his first, comes about two months after his Hanoi summit with President uh, Trump failed because of disputes over U.S.-led sanctions on uh, on the North, rather. President Putin observers say uh, he wants to expand Russia's clout in the region and gain more leverage with Washington. And this was an effort to do that. Leading Democrats and 2020 Democratic candidates for president have been divided over whether to pursue impeachment against President Trump since last week's release of special counsel Robert Mueller's redacted report which found no evidence of collusion and didn't draw a conclusion on whether Trump obstructed justice. Despite various ongoing congressional investigations of the president, which he himself has vowed to fight, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to pursue it. Representative Maxine Waters, known for rallying supporters with her cries to impeach 45, now seems hesitant. Hillary Clinton has cautioned on her part, House Democrats in a Washington Post op-ed against immediately launching impeachment proceedings against the president, urging the party to widen its platforms to a more sensible agenda for the upcoming elections, keeping 2020 in mind rather than the hit that might, uh, they might enjoy today. One of America's oldest Jewish organizations called Wednesday for U.S. Representative Rashida Tlaib to be removed from congressional committees and from the Democratic Party. In an editorial posted on its website, the Zionist Organization of America, that dates back to 1897, pointed to what it describes as Tlaib's anti-Israel record and accused the freshman of, uh, freshman congresswoman of associating with terrorists, anti-Semites, and conspiracy theorists. Rashida Tlaib's anti-Israel record was already well known before she was elected in last year's midterm elections. The ZOA article asserts, since taking office in January, Tlaib has been a lightning rod for criticism from Republicans as well as from members of her own party. And Avengers Endgame hits U.S. movie theaters nationwide tonight and marks the highly anticipated conclusion of a decade long run for the Disney owned Marvel series, which reintroduced several classical, um, or classic superheroes to modern audiences. Avengers has been one of Disney's most bankable film franchises at the box office. According to Fox Business, Avengers in game by the numbers has really been quite impressive. And Attorney General William Barr will testify next week on Wednesday to Senate Judiciary Committee and answer questions about Special Counsel Robert Mueller's final report released last week. Barr will appear at 10 a.m. on the first of May before the Senate Committee chaired by. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, according to a press release from the committee, he's expected to testify to the Democrat-led House Judiciary Committee the next day. And according to Reuters, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has confirmed 695 measles cases so far this year, the highest level since the country declared it had eliminated the virus in 2000. The resurgence, which uh, public health officials blamed in part for the spread of misinformation about the safety of vaccines, has been concentrated mainly in Washington state and New York with outbreaks that began late last year. Reuters also reports that New York City has issued civil summonses to 12 people, it said, were not complying with the mandatory measles vaccination order, as the number of recorded cases in the city's worst outbreak since 1991 rose to 390. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back. Keep in mind, in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Steve Bucci. And Kathy Branzell.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show at 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. Well, I took some time this morning and I watched Better Together, Trinity Broadcasting Network's new program, By Women for Women. And I have to tell you, I was. Impressed. I am impressed. In fact, my expectation was, oh, I think I have some idea of what this program is about. But actually sitting down and watching it, listening to the conversation, these women go deep. It's not just a surface conversation uh, among a group of um, well-coiffed women uh, talking about stuff that we care about. They go deep. And I so appreciated how edifying it was. Uh, how personal it was. And I felt like I was part of the conversation. Well, of course, I'm talking about TBN's latest uh, program, Better Together. And by the way, there are three ways that you can watch Better Together. It um, airs at 1030 a.m. Pacific time. And you can watch it, of course, on TBN. But you can also download the TBN app or you can go uh, uh, find bettertogether.tv and register to watch Anytime. So if 1030 a.m. doesn't work for you, hey, it's the 21st century. There are lots of ways that you can pick that up. Uh, In any event, I have to tell you, it's a better program than I expected. They talked about friendship today. And in fact, we'll be telling you a little bit of what's to expect in the days ahead. But it really was worth watching. I found myself, you know, I turned it on while I'm working thinking, well, it'll be in the background. I'll get a sense of it. Several times during the course of the program, I stopped altogether to listen to, to watch and see what was, uh, what was being said and to really ponder it. So I think you're going to find this to be a, a better program than maybe you expect. Again, three ways to watch. It airs live uh, in here in uh, the Portland Market at 1030 a.m. on TBN. You can download the TBN app or you can go to bettertogether.tv and register to watch any time. Don't miss a conversation. They are Stimulate. And the uh, the audience, the, the panel changes uh, from day to day. So you have different women from different backgrounds and really very diverse uh, who are taking place in this conversation. So you join the conversation um, as well. You know, we do life better when we do it together. So better together. We've been uh, winding our way through the uh, headline news. Uh, President Trump on Wednesday Threaten to close part of the southern border, send more armed soldiers to defend it if Mexico didn't block a new caravan of migrants that are traveling toward the U.S. Officials say that they're expecting a request from the Department of Homeland Security in the coming days for additional troops, although that number is expected to be in the low hundreds. About 5,000 active duty and National Guard troops already are at the border. So it is an, an ongoing challenge uh, to protect it or to man it. Well, the National Security Agency has recommended the White House drop the controversial phone surveillance program that was secretly launched during the George W. Bush administration following the 9-11 attacks. You have to take yourself back to those events and why it was initiated. The program, which collected metadata on U.S. phone calls and text messages, was started without a court order. And its existence wasn't known until former intelligence contractor Edward Snowden leaked information to journalists back in 2013. If the White House follows the NSA's recommendation, the program's legal authority will expire in December. And Latinos are finding their economic legs under the Trump administration, leading the surge in home ownership and income growth and record low poverty rates, according to two comprehensive new surveys. And while they remain far behind whites in income, they have... Uh, seen their third consecutive year of income growth and have a higher workplace participation rate, according to the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals and the Hispanic Wealth Project. Facebook said on Wednesday that it expected to be fined up to $5 billion, yes, with a B, by the Federal Trade Commission for privacy violations. The penalty would be a record for the agency against a technology company and a sign that the United States is willing to punish big tech companies. Facebook has been in negotiation with the regulator for months over a financial penalty for claims that the company violated a 2011 privacy consent decree. That year, the social network promised a series of measures to protect its users' privacy after an investigation found that its handling of data had harmed consumers. And in a state known for its history of political scandals and corruption, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker is the latest official reportedly under federal investigation. The 54-year-old Democratic governor, his wife, and his brother-in-law are all uh, being investigated over a tax break appeal. Pritzker and his wife advocated for a property tax break after they purchased a 126-year-old mansion. According to a Cook County Inspector General's report, First Lady M.K. Pritzker uh, told workers at the home to remove toilets in the residence in order to declare it uninhabitable so that they could get a substantial tax break. Inspector General's report says Pritzker's brother-in-law, Thomas Munster, and M.K. Pritzker's personal assistant, were involved, and the alleged scheme cost taxpayers more than $330,000. And the Satanic Temple has been officially recognized as a church by the Internal Revenue Service three months after taking Sundance by Storm as the subject of the documentary Hail Satan. And that's hail with an A-I and not the other letters. According to an announcement from the from Hail Satan distributor Magnolia Pictures, the temple is now eligible for the tax-exempt status given to other religious institutions. Did I mention that Thursday next is the National Day of Prayer? If you're wondering, just thought I'd mention it. And on this day in 2002, Lisa Left Eye Lopez of the Grammy Award-winning Trio TLC dies at the age of 30 of injuries suffered in an SUV crash in Honduras. And on this day in 1859, the ground is broken for the Suez Canal. And on this day in 1507, 1507, a world map produced by German cartographer Martin Voldensmüller, he contains the first recorded use of the term America in honor of Italian navigator Amerigo Vespucci. So you add the accent and it's more sounds more credible unless you're actually Italian and can tell the difference. Moving on. Well, as I mentioned, former Vice President Joe Biden in an online video officially declared his candidacy for presidency and for president, rather, in 2020, capping off weeks of intrigue and media speculation, which was probably designed that way. He entered a crowded field of Democratic contenders uh, nearly 32 years after he announced his first campaign for president. The campaign is Biden's third for the White House, having also unsuccessfully run in 1988. And 2008. Those were all good years so long ago. With the announcement, which uh, followed months of deliberations, the vice, former vice president becomes a front runner in an incredibly crowded field of Democratic presidential contenders, all vying to face off next year against Donald Trump. The president welcomed Biden into the race, warning him that it, uh, the race will be nasty. I'm not sure if that was a declaration of how he intends to fight it or how he expected his rivals, the uh, Democrats, the 19 others, to fight it. But nonetheless, that's a quote. Um, Biden, uh, along with independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who is making his second straight White House run, have consistently topped the polls in the race for the Democratic nomination. Biden is expected to follow up the announcement with his first high dollar fundraiser in Philadelphia, uh, the home of the Comcast executive David Cohen, and appear at a local union in Pittsburgh on Monday. Well, the former Delaware senator. Um, has for weeks been rallying potential donors in an effort to gain momentum, noting that Sanders and former Representative Beto O'Rourke of Texas managed to raise $6 million within 24 hours of launching their candidacy. The Biden campaign said that the former vice president will lay out his vision for rebuilding America's middle class at Pittsburgh, the event. Well, the start and finish of his initial campaign swing in Pennsylvania is no surprise. One of the key states that uh, Trump flipped in Um, The 2016 election to help him capture the White House. uh, Former Vice President Biden was born in uh, this area, spent uh, his early years in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and the uh, Keystone State has always remained a special place for him. The former vice president has long had his eyes on uh, his presidency. In June of 1987, he first landed a bid for the 1988 Democratic nomination. The then-senator from Delaware was considered one of the stronger candidates in the emerging Democratic field. But three months into his campaign, he faced a newspaper headline that said he plagiarized a speech by British politician Neil Kinnock. Uh, the incident sparked a controversy, knocking Biden out of the race well before the start of the primaries and the caucuses. Well, Biden ran a second time for the Democratic nomination in the 2008 cycle, declaring his candidacy in January of 2007. Despite his long record, his campaign never caught lightning in a bottle. There was also some well-publicized gaffes, um, main calling, for example, uh, and this is a quote. I mean, you got the first mainstream African-American who was articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy, as if that were the exception. He went on to say at the time, I mean, that's a storybook, man. Well, the comments quickly spelled trouble for Biden, forcing him to apologize. He's done a lot of that. Biden's been was also overshadowed by, uh, by by Obama, rather, and then Senator Hillary Clinton. So this is the last round, presumably, of um, Joe Biden running to be the next president of the United States. We're going to uh, take a break here in a moment, but I want to remind you that Steve Bucci will join us later to talk about the threat to cybersecurity Uh, that China poses with Huawei. We'll also talk with Kathy Branzell. She's the author of An Invitation to Prayer. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a couple of things I want to mention uh, on the the vice president's bid for, the former vice president's bid for his party's nomination. Some of the things he needs to and will be um, watching for. He's going to face an early litmus test on impeachment. Is he in favor of it or, or not? He might have an easier go of it now that the Democrats had their phone meeting and they've backed off a little bit, but that's an issue that's likely to come up from, uh, from supporters or would-be supporters. Should he announce a running mate early? You might recall that he um, said that he w- was considering Stacey Abrams, the former Georgia State House Democratic leader, who last year unsuccessfully ran for governor in the Peach State. She uh, knocked the idea down herself, saying um, she doesn't want to run for second place and suggested she could run for president herself. So that was uh, sort of off, but that was uh, tested. The the waters were tested for that. Uh, Whether to endorse uh, liberal proposals such as Medicare for All, Free College, that's going to be a challenge for him if he wants to appeal to the younger, more left-leaning um, end of the uh, political spectrum in the Democrat Party, whether to hold high dollar fundraisers and accept help from super PACs. That is uh, old school politics. That's the way he has done it. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much backlash he gets from that, you know, tonight being a case in point. How to handle allegations of inappropriate conduct with women. That's sort of Uh, trolled him for some time, so I expect he's fully prepared for that. And how to defend his uh, record. Biden served 36 years in the Senate. He has a long record for opponents to pick at and attack, and he's going to be the target because he's at the top of the ticket at this point. His handling of the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings and the testimony of Anita Hill, which he himself has sort of brought up again. Anita Hill never did receive an apology from him And one of the sayings apparently in her family is whenever there's a knock on the door, oh, is it Joe Biden coming to apologize? So he brought it up early in the campaign, anticipating it's going to be an issue. How he handles that is going to be very important. Uh, His role in passing the 1994 crime bill, his vote for the Iraq war, um, uh, among other issues, how to handle concerns uh, over his age. He's not alone in that. You've got uh, three of the leading candidates, one Republican, two Democrat, who are in their mid to late 70s. So some of the challenges he will face, and I'm sure having had so much time to consider whether or not to jump into the race, he and his team have considered carefully how to manage, although he stumbled a little bit already, but how to manage and handle these more difficult uh, questions. Well, this is uh, certainly something to uh, ponder. The U.S. received a $2 million hospital bill. Now, how on earth does the United States of America receive a bill for $2 million covering hospital expenses? Well, that hospital bill was for the 2017 um, uh, care that was given to Otto Warmbier. It came from North Korean, uh, the North Korean government for the care of the American. He fell into a coma for unknown reasons while he was imprisoned in the country, according to a report. So the $2 million bill for mistreating and mishandling his uh, his case uh, was given to the United States. Well, Pyongyang authorities insisted the U.S. envoy sent a, to retrieve the University of Virginia students signed a pledge to pay the bill before allowing Warmbier to, uh, and his comatose body to return to the United States, according to the Washington Post. Citing two people familiar with the situation, the Post reported that the envoy signed an agreement to pay the medical bill on instructions from President Trump. However, it's not clear if the Trump administration ultimately paid the bill which was sent to the Treasury Department. Sources told Bloomberg that the U.S. did not pay North Korea the money they demanded in the bill. While well, The White House declined to comment, with Press Secretary Sarah Sanders saying in a statement, we do not comment on hostage negotiations, which is why they have been so successful during this administration, end quote. a beer was on tour in North Korea, you might recall, when he allegedly stole a propaganda sign from a hotel. He was arrested in January of 2016, sentenced to 15 years in prison with hard labor in March of 2016. The Ohio native, then 21, fell into a coma for unknown reasons while in custody, was held in this condition for another 17 months North Korean officials did not tell American officials until June of 2017 that he'd been unconscious the entire time he died less than a week after he returned to the United States that same month. While well, North Korea has repeatedly denied accusations that Warmbier was tortured and officials told their U.S. counterparts at the time that he had suffered from botulism and then slipped into a coma after taking a sleeping pill. Well, news of his uh, condition sparked an effort by um, Joseph Yun, the State Department's point person uh, on North Korea at the time, to get Warmbier home. It took some doing, but ultimately he did come home and, as mentioned, died about a week later. Now North Korea is looking for $2 million to cover the medical costs that they incurred because they detained the U.S. citizen. Well, the White House announced on Tuesday that it has accepted an invitation from Queen Elizabeth II for President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump to make a state visit to the United Kingdom. The president's visit on the 3rd of June through the 5th will come as part of commemorations of D-Date, the Allied invasion of German-occupied France that began the liberation of Europe in 1944. But it is also an important opportunity to reaffirm the special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K., You might wonder what makes a state visit different from a normal visit. In the United States, the president is both the head of state and the leader of the government. But many countries split these positions. So in Britain, the queen is the head of state while the prime minister is the head of the government. Thus, when the U.S. president visits Britain and meets with the prime minister, it's a regular visit. When the president visits Britain, and it's at the invitation of the queen and has the appropriate ceremonies. In this case, a formal welcome, lunch, dinner at Buckingham Palace, it's a state visit. Of course, in Britain, the queen, a constitutional monarch, issues her invitations on the advice of the government. So in the end, the decision about who gets a state visit is a political one. The first couple's trip to the U.K. in July of 2018, during which they met the queen at Windsor Castle, was billed as a working visit. What's surprising is how rare it is for presidents of the United States to pay a state visit to the U.K. This will only be the third such visit since 1945, following President George W. Bush's state visit in 2003 and President Barack Obama's state visit in 2011. Presidents, uh, as important to the anglo American relationship as Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan all visited Britain, but none did so as part of a state visit. Trump's state visit also will include a ceremony marking the 75th anniversary of D-Day at Portsmouth, a city of the English south coast that was an important embarkation point for Allied forces. Well, after the president and first lady finish the British leg of the trip, they'll travel to France at the invitation of French President Emmanuel Macron, how was that, Clark? Was that was that a pretty good Macron? Oh, he's speechless. He's not paying attention, is the truth. Anyway, they're going to visit uh, with uh, Mr. Well, what's his name? Uh, they're going to participate in D-Day commemorations in Normandy. Uh, Normandy. Well, because of the demands of protocol, a state visit has a higher. Uh, the normal propition, uh, proportion rather, of a ceremony, working time, will be reduced as a result. Discussions likely will center on Brexit, Britain's ongoing effort to exit the European Union. Who knows if that will be resolved by then? And the president can be expected to reiterate his and his administration's welcome pledge that the UK stand at the front of the queue for a major U.S. trade deal post-Brexit. Well, the relationship between the U.S. and Britain is deep and close, That doesn't mean that we agree on everything. Leaders as close personally and as ideologically aligned as Reagan and Margaret Thatcher disagreed from time to time— And clear points of difference exist between Donald Trump and the current Prime Minister, Theresa May, who may or may not still be there at the time. We can count on the media to enumerate every one of these and to play them up as the president's state visit approaches. Remember, nations like people agree easily only when nothing serious is at stake. Differences about things that matter are the mark of a relationship that mattered 75 years ago in Normandy, and that matters to the U.S., Britain, and the world Today, Well, U.S. District Judge Michael McShane late Tuesday said that he'll grant a preliminary injunction against new federal restrictions that bar taxpayer-funded family planning clinics from referring patients to abortion providers, calling the rule a ham-fisted approach to public health policy. Oregon is one of 20 states in the District of Columbia that challenged the Trump administration's changes to Title X family planning program in U.S. District Court in Oregon, Along with Planned Parenthood affiliates and the American Medical Association. They sought a national injunction, but the judge said his uh, reluctance uh, to set national health care policy and would describe the scope of his injunction in a formal written opinion soon. The U.S. Justice Department urged any injunction apply only to the plaintiffs in this case, noting at uh, least four similar suits pending in other case states. McShane said the so-called gag rule barring physicians from referring patients who don't want to continue their pregnancies to an abortion provider prevents doctors from behaving like medical professionals. I'm not sure how that uh, quite goes with the Hippocratic Oath, but we'll just leave it at that for now. The judge also found that it would create a class of low-income women who couldn't receive a full range of medical care options, foster a geographic vacuum in reproductive health, how abortion is considered reproductive health, um, anyway, and likely cause an increase in abortions due to more unwanted pregnancies. He said the rule, which is set to go into effect on the 3rd of May, represents an arrogant assumption that government is better suited to direct health care instead of providers. Huh. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Fifty-one minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Steve Bucci about the threat of China's 5G network that they, um, well, there are strings attached. We'll talk about it with him at five. And Kathy Brenzel, she's the author of An Invitation to Prayer. She also serves on the National Day of Prayer board. And that's coming up the first Thursday in May, which is, of course, next Thursday. So she'll join us in the 5 o'clock hour as well. Well, a Massachusetts judge and court officer accused of helping an illegal immigrant flee an Immigration and Customs Enforcement agent waiting to take him into custody were indicted on Thursday by a federal grand jury for obstruction of justice and three other counts. Uh, Newton District Court Judge Shelley... M. Uh, Richmond, Joseph and the court officer identified in uh, court documents as Wesley McGregor faced several charges stemming from an April the 2nd, 2018 incident in which the pair allegedly helped Jose Menendez Perez get out of the courthouse via a back door in order to elude the ICE agent who sought uh, Medina Perez. Uh, this case is about the rule of law. The allegations in today's indictment involve obstruction by a sitting judge that is intentional interference with the enforcement of federal law. And that is a crime It's a quote from U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, Andrew Lelling, uh, earlier today. And President Donald Trump called a Democratic-controlled House committee's subpoena of his tax and financial records ridiculous two days after his lawyer sued to block the compulsory request. Legal experts predict the matter will end up as the separation of powers case before the U.S. Supreme Court. So don't hold your breath for this being resolved anytime soon. The question likely would contrast a congressionally enacted statute making all tax returns confidential with the wide latitude Congress has for investigation previously recognized by the high court. The House Oversight and Reform Committee wrote uh, seeking documents from the Trump organization's accounting firm, Um, to obtain tax records dating back to January of 2009, long before President Trump was even a candidate. On Tuesday, Trump said the Trump Organization sued House Oversight Chairman Elijah Cummings to block that subpoena. The subpoena, he said, is ridiculous. We have been, I have been the most transparent president and administration in the history of our country by far. That's a quote. Uh, He was speaking to reporters Wednesday at the White House. Well, the Justice Department last week released a lightly redacted version of special counsel Robert Mueller's report on Russia's uh, interference in the 2016 election, which cleared Trump and his campaign of conspiring with the Russians, but made no judgment on the question of obstruction of justice. Attorney General William Barr and his top uh, deputy, Robert uh, Rosenstein, or Rod Rosenstein, decided to, uh, the evidence um, uh, attempted to, uh, of attempted Obstruction of the probe did not warrant criminal charges. Well, the Democrats are not happy with that. And while impeachment is not on the table, pursuing obstruction charges is. Uh, Trump characterized the House committee subpoena for tax records as a fallback once the Russia witch hunt didn't work out for the Democrats. So the Supreme Court, it's being predicted, will ultimately resolve this issue uh, for this case. And I suppose for all time with regard to this kind of uh, information. Daryl Jose Mass Montenegro, he paid $13,000 to be smuggled from Honduras to Los Angeles. He doled out big payments for every leg of that journey. His first leg was $3,000 and went to smugglers in Honduras while he was still in country. Then he paid $1,500 more in southern Mexico, 2000 in northern Mexico, 1500 uh to the stash house operator who kept him holed up in a car wash near McAllen, Texas, He was paying two thousand dollars to be packed in the back of a truck hauling watermelons and driven through the um, border patrol checkpoint en route to Houston. He owed a final three thousand dollars once he was in Los Angeles. He never made it, getting snared along with twenty-two other immigrants entering the country illegally with watermelons. But the thousands uh, he had already paid was free and clear for the smugglers who got him that far. Well, the story, we're being told, is repeated hundreds of thousands of times over, uh, both for those who get caught and for those the uh, Border Patrol never detects. As their numbers grow, they line the pockets of some of the world's most dangerous organizations, Homeland Security Department authorities are saying. Well, the Rand Corporation is releasing a report putting a dollar amount on the at least some of that traffic it estimates that Central American migrants paid as much as $2.3 billion to be smuggled into the United States in 2017. At the same time, Randsev says, the cartels take um, could be as low as $200 million. So I'm not sure how they're coming up with those numbers, but quoting here, Oran made its calculation based on high and low estimates from migrants' payments and then calculations of how many people actually made the journey. They limit their study to those from the Northern Triangle, the countries in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, so there could be others, and those figures could certainly fluctuate. Rand identified four types of operators in the human smuggling trade, ranging from independent operators who offer their own services, such as driving or guiding, all the way to formal networks run by a single kingpin who can monopolize... In route of traffic, while the formal networks, the organized smuggler cartels are the most notorious homeland security officials say those cartels either operate in coordination with or are the same as drug smuggling organizations using those people to ply their trade into the country as well. Uh, Yet Rand said it's likely the less formal networks and independent operators are the ones making the most money from human smuggling. We learned that human smuggling involves many different types of actors and that we could not credibly distinguish most criminal organizations' activities and revenues from those of other actors, including ad hoc groups and independent operators that engage in human smuggling, uh, Victoria Greenfield, the report's lead author, says. At best, we could provide a broad range for the revenues of all types of human smugglers. Oran said one uh, a pot of money from smugglers' routes almost certainly ended up in the drug cartel's hands. The pesos, or tax, uh, was paid to use the cartel's routes across the U.S.-Mexico border. The tax generally ranged from 300 to $700. I'm not sure if that's per individual or per uh, organization smuggling numbers of individuals, but Northern Triangle country migrants paid $30 million to $180 million in um, pesos in 2017, according to... The researchers, The research was sponsored by Homeland Security. The numbers uh, that they used are two years old, cover a time when migration plummeted under uh, after President Trump took office. Those numbers have since surged to levels not seen in more than a decade. The cost of transi- transiting has also soared, so those numbers could be significantly higher. The Washington Times has found that the tax paid to cartels, again, that fee, if you will, uh, what the migrants also refer to as the mafia fee, has grown, uh, with a $1,000 payment being most common. Costs, however, vary dramatically, according to the data the Times compiled over the past year from court documents in thousands of border smuggling cases. That desperate to uh, make it into the country. Well, I don't have time to go into it uh, right now. But the suicide bombers who killed the 359, and I think that number has since been adjusted downward. 359 people in Sri Lanka's Easter Sunday terror attacks were largely well-off. and included one who studied law in Australia, according to officials. Some of the suspected bombers, most of them are well-educated, come from maybe middle- to uh, upper-middle-class families, so are financially independent, and their families are quite stable. That's according to Sri Lankan junior defense minister Ruwan, last name I won't attempt, speaking to reporters of the eight men and one woman who government officials believe uh, to be behind the carnage. Perhaps none fits that bill more than the brothers, um, uh, Ibrahim is their last name, sons of a prominent Sri Lankan spice exporter. According to Indian outlet uh, First Post, which cites uh, intelligence sources, identified the siblings as two of the attackers carrying virtually uh, identical backpacks stuffed with explosives. Uh, the 33- and 31-year-olds um, entered two hotels in the coastal capital of Colombo on Easter Sunday morning. Standing at the hotel's uh, breakfast buffet, the brothers detonated their uh, loads within minutes of each other. Two of six near simultaneous blasts that killed um, at least 359. And again, I think that number has since been adjusted, wounded um, at least another 500 in the island nation's hotels and churches. 5 o'clock, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, who writes for The Daily Signal, Steve Bucci, He writes that anyone concerned with protecting our wireless uh, wireless communication systems from state-sponsored Chinese surveillance should take note of several important and troubling developments. And trust me, they are important and troubling. Uh, Mr. Bucci served America for three decades as an Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official. He is a visiting fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for Foreign and National Security Policy uh, Studies, and that includes cybersecurity. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure, Georgine. Thank you for having me back on the show.
2: Well, it's always good to have you. And this is really very troubling, um, the thought that uh, China would control 5G. But I think for many of us, we don't really understand what that means and what the implications are. You point out that last year, uh, China state-sponsored, is it Huai? How do you pronounce that? Technologies. Uh, It's Huawei. Huawei, thank you, uh, which in 2012 bipartisan congressional report labeled a national security risk surpassed Sweden's uh, Ericsson to uh, become the world's largest telecom equipment provider. Now, the average reader might see that and think, well, what's the big deal? But there are security concerns that are very dangerous. Can you explain?
3: Well, simply put, you know, the Chinese equipment generally has malware in it or, or capabilities in it that allow Chinese to have access to it and definitely the, the enterprises that are still run by Huawei they, they manage them for their clients uh, they, they have a touchback to the Chinese government and in particular the Chinese intelligence services it's in their public law that everybody who you know every Chinese business has that responsibility to cooperate with their intelligence services in gathering information. So these folks are all over the world now, and, and basically, when you let them in, you're letting in the Chinese intelligence services.
2: Now, one of the problems is their 4G networks are not compatible with any other system, so that if uh, a business, a country is looking for 5G you can't just plug something else in out of security concerns because they've deliberately made themselves a monopoly by making the 4G incompatible. Is that correct?
3: That's correct. They have uh, basically by selling equipment at the the 4G level, that's the the predominant system we have around the world now, uh, at, at below market prices, they made it very attractive for these various countries to, to ask Huawei to come in and provide a service in that equipment. Except now, going up to five G, uh, you can't switch if you, those countries the equipment that's there is proprietary to a level where they're they're hoping that only Huawei five G equipment will be compatible with it. Uh, so, unless you want to scrap your whole system. You have to stay with Huawei, uh, and, and in fact, they're they're getting even more and more prominent. They're making a lot of uh, headway in, in Europe, uh, in Latin America. They're all over Africa, and obviously, you know, very, very prominent in Asia as well. They tried to come in here. Uh, America kind of held them at arm's length, but now that we the going to 5G, they're really making a push that they are the right people to do this, uh, except there's lots and lots of strings back to that uh, that surveillance ability.
2: You make reference to six former top Pentagon uh, leaders, including the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, who earlier this month warned of and I quote near persistent data transfer back to China if the U.S. were to incorporate Huawei or other Chinese telecom equipment into our 5G networks. Now this is such a strong warning. It's surprising that uh, countries like or or regions like Europe um, would use Huawei. I mean, economically, I suppose you're spending a lot less money. What kinds of excuses are they making, or are they unconcerned to think they have a fix, or or how do they justify? Uh, moving in that direction
3: uh, most of them uh particularly in europe are are trying to say well we understand the threat and we're going to mitigate it and we'll all work together to take steps to keep this from happening but i can tell you that that's kind of weak sauce that's that's not very comforting uh, you know and europe is as concerned if not more than we are with with data protection and and uh anonymity for their citizens but here in the midst of, of that kind of concern, because of the economic factors, they're leaning towards Huawei and you know the rest of us are going, whoa, wait a minute, you know, the Chinese have some of the most intrusive surveillance on their own people of any country in the world. They have a, a publicly uh, you know announced law that all of these companies that work outside uh, China have a responsibility to work with their intelligence services. and now you're going to let them in not just to you know, have their equipment here or there or scattered around, but have them own the 5G network for you. Uh, it's just baffling to me that anyone with any concern for privacy and, uh, and stopping foreign intelligence operations would do this. But a lot of countries, because of the economic factor, are moving in that direction.
2: Now, you mentioned that Australia announced that they're going to block Huawei. The EU stopped short of banning Huawei. The United States has been uh, tirelessly sounding the alarm. Let's say our allies in Europe um, and others in Africa uh, do use the Huawei system. How might that endanger uh, users here in the United States who are communicating uh, with our friends abroad? Well,
3: uh, one part is there's a lot of American companies that operate habitually in Europe or other overseas areas and their their equipment and their communications will all be plugged into these systems. so there's a, a direct threat to American entities that operate abroad. but you know phone systems are they, they sort of flow back and forth you know uh, the, the Canadians for example use Huawei equipment quite a bit. And the Canadian system—I mean, you guys, where you are, you're right across the, you know, the border mm-hmm. from them—the uh, the phone systems are sort of connected, uh, and so that connectivity with with uh, telephone uh, services, you know, and it's all digital now, uh, makes it difficult to protect yourself here if you're interconnected with those systems. So. It is a threat to the United States. We need to continue our stand against China and particularly Huawei coming in and and doing this here in the United States. But we need to work very diligently with our allies, try and find workarounds to provide some degree of protection for ourselves. And hopefully we can convince them to protect themselves as well.
2: Now, one of the things that you suggest the president needs to do is to push for interoperability, which means you can have a Huawei 4G system, but you could then choose something else that's not uh, Huawei uh, to expand to 5G.
3: Yeah, that that's an obvious one. That's to get around the economic incentive uh, to, to stay with Huawei, is to provide some sort of option that we can, you know, show other countries, look, we know you already went with the 4G uh understand You did that for economic reasons, but please don't make the jump to the 5G with that same equipment. Here's an option, and uh,
2: mm-hmm.
3: if we can provide that, or you know, it doesn't have to be American companies. It'd be nice if it was, but uh, if we can provide some sort of option to hopefully wean some of these folks away from Huawei, that would be a great benefit from a security standpoint, and uh, and you know the the ability to maintain privacy uh, in the way that we should.
2: Are you optimistic that we might succeed in that effort? Uh, I I tend to be very optimistic about
3: lots of things, Georgie. <laughs> uh, I, I hope that we can. Uh, you know, President Trump uh, has been open to, to this kind of argument, and, and he's pretty convincing when he gets going. Hopefully we can. Uh, you know, the, prior to that, we had a lot of, of sort of laissez-faire attitude oh, they're not that big a threat, this is not a problem, you know, it's just economics, Uh, and unfortunately it's not. If it were just economics, I'd say, okay, you know, let's go out and fight and and try and win the customers, but there's more to it than that, Uh, and and hopefully that security element of it will give us the extra motivation we need to uh, hopefully get at least some success in this area. So We need to protect ourselves and our own citizens, and this is really the only way to do
2: it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate your drawing our attention uh, to this threat. And we'll certainly follow with interest what the president and others are prepared to do to protect us. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for having me on the show. And thank you for spotlighting a really important issue.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Again, Steve Bucci, who served America for three decades as an Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official, is a visiting fellow in the, U- the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center. For foreign Policy Studies. One of the things he points out in the, uh, uh, in the article is that, um, let's see if I can find it once again, that Huawei would be in a position to access emails, important files, other data flowing through its hardware. And even though secure communications are encrypted, there's emerging quantum computing technology in which China plays a leading role eventually will break those codes instantly. So that is not even a protection that's guaranteed moving forward. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, the National Day of Prayer is always on the first Thursday of May, and that's coming up next week on the 2nd of May. And our next guest is a board member and coordinator of the National Day of Prayer. And she's also the author of an invitation to prayer, inviting us uh, to spend time not just in corporate prayer for the nation once a year, but to develop a prayer life that leads us to better understand who God is and what He has called us to do, and His love and protection over us. The book is titled An Invitation to Prayer, Developing a Lifestyle of Intimacy with God. And my guest is Kathy Branzell. She is the National Coordinator of Love 2020. She's been an active member of the Mission America Coalition since 2000. She's serving with the Education Coalition. She taught for 10 years in elementary school, private and public, and then taught in the education departments of the University of Georgia, And Fayetteville State University, she began her ministry journey as a founder and president of Fellowship and Christian Encouragement, or FACE for Educators, where for over 17 years, she's written weekly devotionals to equip and encourage educators, and they certainly do need to be encouraged As I mentioned, she serves on the board uh, and membership of the National Prayer Committee. She sits on the board of of directors for National Day of Prayer. She's the author of Prayer Warrior, the Battle Plan to Victory, and is a contributing author to Frontline. She is also a chaplain for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association Rapid Response Team. She joins us today today to talk about her latest book, An Invitation to Prayer. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for the invitation. I'm not sure how you have the time, given all that you're doing, but I (laughs) I appreciate your squeezing us in.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I really am glad to be with you.
2: Well, an invitation to prayer is an invitation to uh, a devotional in which each day you reflect on the things that the heart longs for the most. Let's talk about the structure of the book so listeners who don't have Uh, Have it in front of them can better understand what we're talking about. Describe an invitation to prayer.
4: Oh, that's wonderful. So I appreciate it. Uh, So, an invitation to prayer is a 90 day devotional that starts out at the very basics of understanding that the five things that in my 20 years of ministry I found everyone's looking for just read all the things that God's allowed me to do. I've met so many people in disastrous situations and celebrations and all kinds of situations, but people are looking for these five things, and that's peace, love, wisdom, happiness, and purpose. But unfortunately, we find that people look for those in power and positions and possessions and other people, and really they can only be found in a relationship, a personal relationship with God. And so we start out every Sunday with a theme and uh, scriptures of how you can only find this, and it's foundational in Christ. And then from there, Monday, we have the devotionals about peace, Tuesday love, Wednesday wisdom, Thursday happiness, Friday purpose, and on Saturday, we say law. We pause and ponder. So based on what you learned this week, based on how you prayed this week, what you heard from God this week, how will you behave differently and believe differently differently? And so in this lifestyle of 90 days, it actually builds you into a habit that goes into a lifestyle of prayer so that it actually feels weird if you don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, they say you can build a habit in 21 days, but how many people have broken a diet on day 22? (laughs) I know I have. (laughs) So a 90 days gives you a, a longer time for you to learn more and it should become a stronger part of your life.
2: Now, each day ends with an invitation to prayer where there's an actual prayer. Sometimes it's difficult to give voice to what our heart's cry is, but you invite um, your readers to pray with this invitation should they need that additional encouragement.
4: That's right. And when uh, National Day of Prayer, and as we've done Pray for America bus tours and training, we hear the same thing that Jesus heard, teach us to pray. Mm -hmm. And so these are just prayer prompts that go back to the Scripture and the lessons of the devotion. Um, we invite you to continue to pray for half an hour, an hour, all day long, but uh, every day kind of gives you a prompt to get you started.
2: Now, prayer is something that uh, I think many people struggle with. They're not quite sure how to go about it, how to begin, um, what it consists of. The National Day of Prayer is a, a wonderful primer because it uh, it gives us some specific things to pray for and their opportunities to pray corporately together why do you think people struggle so much with prayer which is such an incredible invitation to come before the throne of grace in an intimate conversation with god
4: yeah I, a couple of things i think that uh, for some people it feels weird to uh, To have a conversation with somebody that you can't see, mm-hmm. and so uh, there's a struggle in, in just understanding. This is the communication piece of your relationship with God. And Ian Bound said, you know, we move our prayers, move the hands that move the universe. And so to be able to come to your Abba Father, who loves you so much, yet the Creator and the King of Kings with so much power, um, it, it what an incredible experience. But people maybe don't know about the praise portion of prayer where mm-hmm. we're we're praising God for his attributes, who he is, the unchanging God to who he is. There's no gotcha in a relationship with him. Uh, who he is today is who he'll be tomorrow and uh, who he's always been. The Thanksgiving part of praise uh, where we're giving thanks to him. And uh, then, of course, the intercession side. And, and that's a lot about a National Day of Prayer where we are crying out, uh, crying out on behalf of our nation. And we we ask ab- about the needs of others, people who are sick, people who need to know Him, uh, people who are struggling, and then asking for ourselves, um, and then always going back uh, in, in different ways through all the different pieces uh, of being a united family in Christ in the conversation.
2: What is God's intent in calling us into His presence in prayer? What is He... Uh, want us to learn, and and what's the purpose of this uh, this conversation, if you will?
4: You know, I I, I think that uh, what I think most is the joy of the Lord is my strength, and so your father loves you. He created you. He gave you life. He gave you his son. He gave you his spirit. He gave you uh, different lessons and gifts and opportunities. And I think He just wants to talk to you about Him, just like uh, we have conversations around our dinner table or with friends across, uh, you know, a cup of coffee. And and God wants to guard you and guide you. It's not that He's a killjoy. It's not that, you know, He's just sitting around waiting for you to mess up. It's That's not who He is. He loves you. And so with that... D- Prayer grows our personal relationship with Him, it grows our intimacy, and we are strengthened when we really seek His face, when we think about who He is, and, uh, and we abide in that, and that gives us strength to get through these hard days.
2: Mm-hmm. We're talking this afternoon with the author of an invitation to prayer, and that's precisely what God invites and calls us to. Kathy Branzell is our guest. The forward to the book is written by Dr. Ronnie Floyd. You should know as well. An invitation to prayer will help you develop a lifestyle of intimacy with God, and I so appreciate the reference to trying to develop a new habit. Um, this these ninety days give you the uh, the not only the the capacity to pray on a regular, consistent basis, but I think it also helps to build a desire uh, to pray and to better understand the value of spending that time uh, before the Lord. Now, in uh, putting the book together, you began with uh, with Sunday, and as you uh, m- mentioned a few moments ago, you structure each week in a particular way so that you're not moving from one subject to another very quickly, but you really have an opportunity to go deeper and to reflect on each of the uh, the focuses and the, the five things that every human heart longs for, love, peace, wisdom, happiness, and purpose. Right,
4: right, and, and there's a lot of neuroscience that went behind um, into this book. I love neuroscience every day. I have my prayer time, I have my Bible study time, and then I read uh, a white paper, a medical journal, a neuroscience textbook, because I love how you can lay science on top of Scripture and hear God say, I told you so. And mm. and so it's fun to to uh, put a lot of this together. And so understand, in the way that the book is structured, that your, um, your core conscious is always asking, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? and we know the, the the reaction is fight or flight,
2: mm-hmm.
4: but only if you feel safe, if the conscious is, is certain that you are safe, the next question it asks is, am I loved? Am I cared for? And if, and only if the answer to both those questions is yes, I'm safe and I'm cared for, does the brain turn on and say, what can I learn? And that's where the wisdom steps in. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom but it's only in walking it out, it's only when the brain is at peace with God and is known it's loved by God, that it can walk in the wisdom of God. And the brain turns on and says, Lord, what can you teach me? And God knew the way he knit us together. And happiness, I just want to talk about that word for a minute. Mm-hmm. Cause sometimes happiness gets, you know, gets some bad press. Because will go, you know what, the word happy's is not in the Bible. Well, it's, it's in the New Testament 42 times. It's the word blessed or blessed. And um, it's the word makarios, and that is the word happy, and it's not the happy that, that we tend to think about, it's the happy, blessed, because of your current condition in Christ and that better days are coming. So in the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are the poor, uh, poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who give mercy, and you might be thinking, happy are those who mourn? That, that, that sounds ridiculous. But it's because of the for they are, so in our present tense, and what will come. And so we, that's where the happiness piece comes in. And so we really focus on what is now and what is to come in the book. And then finally, purpose. God has an amazing plan for his kingdom, and we get to be a part of it. We're an essential part of it. Everything we do every day, work is worship, because we work unto the Lord. And so in that, you, ha- you find your purpose, you- and you know that every day you get up and you have a piece of the kingdom that you get to take with you and that you get to accomplish in the Lord.
2: Again my guest is Kathy Branzell. We're talking about her book An Invitation to Prayer. We're going to continue that conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Kathy Branzell. Her book is titled An Invitation to Prayer, and it's a, a tremendous opportunity for those of us who want to grow more intimate with God and have some of those very intimate and common needs that we all have to be addressed in Scripture over a 90-day period. Kathy is the National Coordinator for Love 220 and has been an active member of the Mission America Coalition since 2000. She serves with the Education Coalition as well. She also has served on the Board of Directors for the National, uh, uh, National Prayer Committee and the Board of Directors for the National Day of Prayer, which, of course, is coming up next Thursday, always the first Thursday uh, in May. Let's talk about the National Day of Prayer, if we might, for just a moment. It's an invitation for us corporately to lift up our nation in prayer. And I think there's so much um, contention going on right now that perhaps people are giving up on the idea that prayer makes any difference at all when we are so fractured as a nation. Um, Why do you think it's important for us, especially now, as is always the case, that we humble ourselves in prayer? And what might we expect as a result? How should we pray? Uh.
4: Yes. Yes. Please don't give up in prayer. Please, <laughs> we know that that is our hope. And uh, so, what's special about the National Day of Prayer is that it's the celebration and culmination of the other 364 days that we pray. Well, it's beautiful on that day. Uh, last year, we know that we had over 52,000 uh, united public gatherings for prayer. And that's so exciting. That doesn't even include the ones that were in, uh, you know, boardrooms and living rooms or small groups, uh, you know, the private ones where people weren't publicly invited to come. And there's something very special about praying in agreement. And then we want to take those prayers um, because it's not just something we say. It's something we want to show and share and live. And so this year's theme, very excited that um, it's Love One Another and it comes from John 13:34 where Jesus said, "A new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you." And so I'm so excited to think about millions of prayers being lifted up on Thursday, May 2nd on the National Day of Prayer. And then for a movement of God to happen where people go out and live that love, Jesus said in the next verse, he said, The, the world will know you're my disciple mm-hmm. by your love." And disciples are, are students. That word is pupil. It's student. And so that's us. We, we have something new to learn all the way until uh, our, our, our last breath here, and we step into his presence in what my friend T.W. Hunt used to call graduation day.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And so um, it, we, we have to come together. If prayer is something we can agree on, we have to come together, and we need to be living a lifestyle of love. Love has to has to replace hate and anger. We're killing ourselves chemically um, with with epinephrine and with adrenaline in our anger towards one another. We need to start praying for one another instead of complaining. And, And unity has to replace division. You know, a house divided will never stand, and America won't stand if we stay this divided. And only, only the love of Jesus can repair us. Mm. Are you hopeful? I am very hopeful. I have um, seen the church coming together in unity like never before. I see ministries working together that instead of competing with one another, we're completing the Great Commission. I see people sharing uh, resources. I hear less people saying, my members, my donors, and more our, more kingdom-minded and kingdom-language I'm very hopeful and um and so we continue
2: to pray. God is still on his throne. We're talking with Kathy Branzel. She is the author of several books. We're talking about her latest, an invitation to prayer. It's a ninety day devotional that's intended to address our longing for peace and wisdom, love, happiness, and purpose. And in fact, each day of the week in an invitation to prayer. You uh, take the subject that is the focus and address each one of those things in order that we might encounter peace or experience love, gain wisdom, uh, discover happiness, and uh, find the purpose that God intends for us from the very beginning. One of the things that you emphasize from the very beginning of an invitation to prayer is that we were created by a, a God for purpose, that we have a purpose um, that He loves us. And that's a message so often we need to be reminded of.
4: That's right. And, you know, we say such negative things to ourselves. That if we said them to our, our friends, they probably wouldn't be our friends anymore. And so it's very important to know who God is and then who we are to Him. And and with that, I mean, read read the first three chapters of Ephesians. <laughs> mm. uh, find out who, who you are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And with that, then... Uh, he authored your days. He has a very specific purpose for your life, to love Him and to love others, to go and make disciples. We, we really um, talk about living a prayer, care, share lifestyle. and Those are kind of do- God's three priori- top priorities for us. Um, but to know that you matter here, that every soul uh, was created with a purpose, with a kingdom purpose, and the people that you meet every day, the place that you live, you know, you may not be able to go around the world, but it sure is important to go across the street mm. or across that hallway and, and share the love of Jesus. And, and Satan has us uh, really confused and scared. He, he's tricked us into thinking it's way too hard, that, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar, I, I don't have the Bible memorized, I can't share my faith. Well, absolutely you can, because God says, remember what I've done and then tell others. And so what has the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come, what has he done in your life? What is he doing in your life? And what in his word has he promised that he's going to do for you and for all who would believe in him? And and that's just a simple, practical, every way day to have these Jesus conversations about your faith and about how your faith has changed your life.
2: What difference do you anticipate spending 90 days focusing on um, that invitation to the presence of God will make. Mm-hmm. And what do you imagine if the, the body of Christ in general made the commitment to spend that time in prayer, to spend that time in God's presence, to recognize that in him all of our needs are met, and then to make our way back out into the world uh, with a heart of ministry and love for our neighbors.
4: Oh, wouldn't that be exciting? Um, it, you know, God said, my house will be a house of prayer. And prayer is a high priority to God. And so yeah, I think that it would, first of all, we'd be a lot healthier <laughs> because of all of the health problems that we have, because we're anxious and we worry and we don't sleep enough and, and all of those things. So we we would be a lot healthier, and we certainly would be a lot happier. And then we would walk those out, um, you know, we if we could just behave as we believe. If we started knowing our Bible, praying our Bible, obeying our Bible, and sharing our Bible, that, that would change us. It would change our world. It could change our families, our marriages. And there's this outflow and overflow um, of that. And so whatever is filling your heart fills your mind and fills your mouth. And so the 90 days is meant, you know, it takes 21 days to start detoxing your brain. And so you take every thought captive and you go, is this truth or is this trash? And and, and you, you throw out the trash and you decide that you're going to meditate, you're going to focus on God's word, pick your favorite scripture, start naming his attributes, seek his face in that, give him praise instead of um, gossiping or complaining. Every time you catch yourself grumbling, stop and give him glory. And then the next 21 days fills you up with this new habit, with this the, the new way of doing things. And then the next 21 days kind of solidifies it um, and, and beyond that, so that at the end of 90 days, it feels weird if you don't. Um, you, you, it, it's so much harder to slide back after 90 days of this lifestyle.
2: Well, the book, once again, is titled An Invitation to Prayer, and while Kathy Branzell is the author, the invitation comes from God Himself to come into His presence for that purpose. Kathy, thank you so much for the book, and uh, thank you for your work with the National Day of Prayer. We look forward here in our community to joining believers all across the country and lifting our voices uh, in prayer on behalf of our country.
4: Oh, thank you, and we'd love to hear your story. So if you'll go on the nationaldayofprayer.org website and let us know. Send us pictures. We want to hear um, what God did in your community and and see pictures of you praying together. We just appreciate you so much.
2: Thank you so much, Kathy. God bless. God bless. The book, An Invitation to Prayer, Peace, Love, Wisdom, Happiness. These are the things um, that our hearts long for, and the book focuses on how spending time in God's presence satisfies all of those longings of the human heart. Once again, the National Day of Prayer coming up Next Thursday, I hope you make plans and arrangements to pray with others. If not, uh, spend some time in prayer for our nation. It's not as if we actually need it, but you know, do it anyway. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. And the truth is, I've been rushing to this segment because I wanted to share something with you that is so exciting to me. You might consider it a little self-serving, but I'm so proud I'm about to burst. I was forwarded an email earlier today that said this. The following article on Lieutenant Commander Jordan Stutzman, let me pause for a moment, that happens to be my nephew, appears today in the Portland Tribune and the six community newspapers, Beaverton Valley Times and so on. The article has also been posted on the Tribune's website as shown below. I have also emailed the article to the Christian News Northwest for the May issue, and it goes on from there. Well... The headline of the issue, uh, the article rather, that appears in the Portland Tribune as well as the Beaverton Valley Times and other local papers, Southwest Christian graduate becomes one of the youngest officers to command U.S. naval ship. At 34, Lieutenant Commander Jordan Stutzman recently took command of the USS Dexterous, an Avenger-class mine countermeasure ship. That was uh, written by Fred Wallström, and it appears in today's issue. At the top of the article is a picture of my nephew. It's his official naval picture where he is formally, his hands are folded on the table in front of him, the flags uh, draped behind him with a smile on his face, and he's wearing his uh, captain's cap. And it says this commissioned on June or rather July 9th, 1994. The Dexterous is home ported in Bahrain and is part of the U.S. Fifth Fleet. The 224 foot long ship has a crew of 90 enlisted members and six officers. Stutzman served as executive officer of Dextrus before becoming its commanding officer on the 19th of February, according to Navy records. The late Captain Leon Grabowski was the youngest lieutenant commander to command a U.S. naval vessel at the age of 27. He took command of the destroyer Lutz uh, after its captain was seriously wounded in battle. Um, for Iwo Jima during World War II. Lieutenant Commander is the 19th rank in the United States Navy, ranking above Lieutenant and directly below Commander, the son of Dwayne and Donna Stutzman. That's my brother and sister in... Uh, Stutzman is a 2003 graduate of Southwest Christian School in Beaverton. He graduated from Oregon State University in 2008, earning him a Bachelor of Science degree in Radiation Health Physics and an MBA in Commercialization of Clean Technology. It's rare that a young man would be given command of one of the U.S. Navy's ships, says Scott Gilchrist, a name you'll recognize, senior pastor of Beaverton Southwest Bible Church who has known Jordan for most of his life. He is a hard worker and a natural leader who has put Christ in his life in a way that influences others. While at Southwest Bible, Jordan invested his time with the youth ministry, mentoring the younger students, Gilchrist noted. Well, Pastor Gilchrist uh, said a lot of Jordan's leadership qualities have come from his parents, Dwayne and Donna. That's my sister and her husband. It's thrilling that their son has been placed in a leadership role with the U.S. Navy. He grew up on a sailboat and has sailing in his blood. Dwayne Stutzman, my brother-in-law, who is the current principal of Southwest Christian School, credits the school with being instrumental in preparing his son for his academic and professional careers. First and foremost, having a spiritual foundation in his life, above and beyond any academic disciplines he's learned, has been a foundation for his success in every area. Jordan grew up at Southwest Bible Family, or with the Southwest Bible Family, where God used so many people in his life to mold him into the young man he is today. Sam Narrow, Jordan's principal during his time at Southwest Christian School and current senior associate pastor for Southwest Bible Senior Ministry, is not surprised at the remarkable success Stutzman has had as a naval officer. The most obvious was his academic excellence and leadership qualities, as well as being a talented musician and athlete. He was also a very reliable helper to me, Mr. Narrow goes on to say. I often had jobs that I called on students to do, and Jordan was the one I called on the most. That was Jordan, capable, reliable, and willing. Well, Stutzman has served in the U.S. Navy for 11 years as a division officer. Stutzman completed two tours of duty abroad, uh, rather aboard, with uh, the guided missile destroyer USS Higgins a DDG-76, serving as first lieutenant and a navigator. From 2009 to 2010, he completed an independent around-the-world deployment, conducting ballistic missile defense operations in the eastern Mediterranean, where he participated in operational unified response following the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. In 2011, he deployed to the Arabian Sea, conducting operations in defense of the Al-Basra oil terminal and ballistic missile defense in the northern Arabian Gulf. As a department head, Stutzman served aboard the guided missile cruiser USS Cape St. George as the weapons officer, completing a 10-month maintenance availability and placing CAPE into, or a CAPE into an inactive status in support of the cruiser's modernization and service life extension program. Probably more than you want to know, but I'm bragging anyway. Stutzman was then assigned to Naval Recruiting District Portland, Oregon from 2011 to 2014, where he served as an officer recruiting Recruiter and assistant operations officer for a district covering five states and 270,000 square miles. While ashore, he completed an MBA in commercialization of clean technology at Oregon State University. For the next 15 months, Stutzman will be a commanding officer of the Dexterous and then have a one-year shore tour. At the command ceremony, Stutzman told the audience about his visits to the decommissioned U.S. Navy battleships, discussing the heritage, tradition, and fighting spirit that those ships embodied in service. Though the Navy has changed since those ships sailed, much remains the same about sailors' commitment, he said, I look forward to carrying on the same values and traditions with you as you prepare to take the dexterous downrange and over the horizon. Sutzman's personal awards include the Navy Commendation Medal. He has two of them. Navy Achievement Medal, three of them, and various service awards. He is married. His wife, he and his wife uh, own a home in San Diego, California, where he will return uh, after he is commissioned. Now. I can't tell you how proud I am of him, so I thought I would just share the details and you might get it on your own. Uh, anyway, this appeared in the Beaverton Valley Times, some of the local newspapers in the Portland Tribune, and maybe in Christian News Northwest. We'll just have to wait and see. Anyway, Jordan James Stutzman, commander of the USS Dextrous, Very proud aunt of a very amazing young man. Well, tomorrow on the program, yeah, you guessed it, we're going to lighten up and take a look at that side of the news uh, we'll look forward to that, and hope you will join us in the process. So, signing off. I'm Georgine Rice. By the way, portions of our program today were brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show, or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice show, and like us on Facebook.